0: My name is Anthony Cappazzoli and this is the Dismantled Life Podcast, where we share stories of hope, love, and strength from the darkness of addiction into the sunlight of sobriety. These are stories from people just like us who have lived through the pain and made it. No matter how bad it gets, just know that you can and will recover. It takes work. It takes hard work. Each week, we talk in detail about what it takes to make it, what it takes to beat your addictions. I am a recovering addict from alcohol cocaine, and nicotine. My addiction started in eighth grade. I am now 50. I had over 40 years of very bad habits to break. I hit rock bottom hard. More than once, I nearly died. I would have left my wife and two young children behind. I've been clean and sober for nearly three years. I completely dismantled my entire life and rebuilt it from the ground up. I believe to make it in recovery, it takes a physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual approach. It takes a positive mindset. It takes hard work. It takes a village. Join me weekly to learn from my sober superhero guests on the Dismantle Life podcast. Subscribe and follow on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you listen to your podcasts. Check me out at dismantle.life. Email me at anthony at anytime. Please be sure to leave a rating and review anywhere you listen to your podcasts and let me know if you want to be on the show. Happy recovery always grateful to have people come on and share their story and uh, participate in, in helping others. Because I think that when the show started, part of my giving back in my recovery was something that I knew how to do, which is the podcast and um, to help others, but selfishly in a weird way. And it wasn't intentional, but it's helped me so much more <laughs> because it it, I, it helps me push the demons and keep them out, I guess, uh, in in a really good way. Uh, so I've been so pleased, and all of the guests have been great. Uh, and I've really enjoyed it. So thank you, Damon, for coming out. I appreciate
1: it. Yeah, my it. pleasure, man. No, I get that. When I started my Twitter account, it was uh, it was all about uh, <clears throat> low, low morality, lots of self pity, and it's just grown into this enormous <clears throat> community of, of crazy people like us.
0: I hated social media. I, I only did it because I had to do it for a very long time. And then once I got into recovery, it has become a wonderful lifeline in a very positive way because I avoid the the bullshit side of the social media, you know, with people's opinions about who knows what I don't care. Uh, but I do love how people post how many days clean they have or I'm just starting my journey or I fell off or, or whatever it is, and I use it to throw sunshine in a wonderful way, and it's and people give me back. A lot of good vibes too. And it's um, sometimes on my, my lowest moments, I, I reach out on Twitter and I always get a positive response back from people that just throw a little support, which is sometimes all you need to kind of course correct a little bit, which is really nice.
1: Yeah, I actually got a, a ban from Facebook when, uh, when I was using it. <laughs> I still don't have a Facebook account. I can't quite face that one. It's,
0: uh... Uh, it's funny. Well, David, I appreciate it. You coming on the show to, to share your story, and I'm maybe we can just dive right in. If that's okay, I, I'm always curious. And just so you know, and then the listeners they're, they're familiar with the show already. I'm 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 not a doctor, so I always ask this question from um, uh, someone in recovery's perspective. But what was pre-addiction like? And that's my own term. What was life like before you got into whatever it is you got into with the uh, the drinking or anything that came as a result of that?
1: Pretty lonely. Uh, so I first picked up a <clears throat> mind altering substance. I think I was thirteen. Uh, you know, school was was rough. I didn't know how to interact, communicate, or participate. I was always the odd kid. Uh, I can remember sitting in the in the cloakrooms of a school, <clears throat> and back then it was 1976. We had really long coats with the, the Parker hoods. Hook that over the uh, over the hook in the cloakroom, put it down over me, put my knees up to my chest, and spend the whole lunchtime just hiding from everyone. I can remember doing that probably from the age of about like 6 7 just
0: wow didn't like,
1: it, didn't like it had to be on my own had to be probably had uh ADHD at that age and it was only only really pointed out to me when my son went for his um his consultation and the uh the psychiatrist who was looking at my son was more worried about me than him <laughs> yeah he kept saying you've you've learned so many unusual coping strategies during your you know, childhood, adolescence, and uh, an addiction. You know, you, you're a complete
0: bundle of nerves. <laughs> you're going to be an addict, so yeah. That's amazing, actually. I have uh, similar issues where I, not ADHD, but my coping mechanisms tend to be a little outlandish at times, of course, with the drinking and the smoking and the cocaine for me. But I ha- I picked up and I'm starting to finally learn how to control like a twitch or verbal outbursts and things. Yeah. And it's, it's strange. And I'm doing my very best. And the reason that I've enjoyed sobriety, not just for all the good things and being sober, but it helps me be a better example for my children so they don't pick up my horrible habits. Um, So I relate to what you're saying is what I'm, what I'm trying to share. Uh, And I understand the pain of that.
1: Especially my son, his, his Xbox use is, uh, is compulsive and when somebody cuts the wi-fi at 3am and it causes hysterical problems he he is the mirror of me when i was drinking and i can manage that in him because then i've just got to say to him do you you recognize and realize your behavior and and what you're doing but the the bonus of that one is he's very much anti-drinking anti-cannabis definitely won't touch cocaine he doesn't know that i did I hope he's he's got the traits in some areas of his life, but the, you know, the real strength that I'm pretty confident he won't do it. But if he did, he'd come to me first.
0: I hope I don't like to do the quid pro quo in the the show. But I also want to share that my both of my children, I have an eight and a five year old, are compulsive. And I'm doing my best about that towards the Xbox or the Nintendo Switch or Fortnite or whatever, whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. And just like you, if I turn off the Wi-Fi, which I have timers set on a device that automatically shuts the Wi-Fi off at certain times and, and things, they lose their goddamn minds. I mean, and I have to learn how to, first of all, deal with that the right way as an addict and then also hopefully coach them the right way to recognize that they're going through something that's very could be very, very serious with that compulsion and I'm sad because I see it in my kids and I know that if I don't do this the right way, that it can very quickly and very easily aim at different things. And that compulsion can then be, they could just, they can be just like me, which would be my worst nightmare.
1: Yeah, I've got a little, a little tool of a mini step for with my son, uh, you know, when, when the madness is on him, step away just step away. There's no point. You know, you're fighting a bear that's got claws and white body. And he's uh, <laughs> 16 and we're not even eye to eye anymore. I'm, I'm looking at the browns and he's, a, he's quite a big lad <laughs> uh, with physical uh, physical daily job and he's got shoulders. He's a big lad. Yeah, I'm Taking him on. There's no way. But I've, <laughs> I've learned after 24 hours, 36 hours, just to say to him, you know, just this, this, look at what you did. Look at what you said and uh, would you talk to your nana like that would you talk to the person in the shop like that probably you know there's limits but uh, and and just seeing that, that that scaling back of his recognition yeah okay yeah you know we went toe-to-toe at the, at the time but uh, hmm. bringing it back into a, look at your part in that and you know where can you and it's worked it's taken a few months but it's starting to work in the respect and the man-to-man side of it it's it's it's, it's improving
0: that's a really good approach. I have to. I, I'm learning also to not compulsively react, and it's hard. I have to because we. Uh, sorry, we're detracting from your your pre addiction story, but the our children probably like yours are at home being homeschooled, as opposed because of COVID, so they can't go to school. So we don't get that physical or mental break from each other. And the emotional tensions just keep building and building and building. So the falls are very hard, especially with an eight and a five-year-old, to keep them focused, to keep them dedicated, to keep them organized. And I know that they're children, but what happens is the tension builds and the struggle, you can just feel it building until it just erupts. And I have to learn how to better diffuse them earlier. And myself at the same time. And then there's a layer with my wife. And there's the dynamics are strange. And it's it's unfortunate because the stress of 2020, compulsion and addictions aside, have been hard on everybody. And then people like me and you, oh boy, it <laughs> get really tough.
1: You say it's detracting from my from my pre-addiction story. This uh the behavior I'm using now and, and the strategies I'm using with my children were exactly what was missing from my pre-addiction story. My my mum had uh, using issues, multiple boyfriends, multiple male partners. Uh, I mean, chaos, dysfunction, um, yeah, ignored and, and virtually did, not left to fend for myself. You know, that that's going to stage too far. But uh, very, very little um, inclusion or, or affection ever. Uh, but that was, that was right through the family. That was auntie's uncle's parents. It was a very traditional agricultural family. You stood on your own two feet. You did what you needed to do. You got up and you got on with it. And uh, you know, I stayed a scared little four-year-old right up into the age of fifteen, and mm. that's what drew drew me into um, into my first addiction of solvents, petrol, glue, uh, you know, all that sort of stuff. Mm. Uh, you know, being being blue-lipped, anything I could steal that, that would evaporate was good. <laughs> <laughs> that was my thing all the way through school, and um, and then seeing seeing my children now and that that gap from where from my my behavior as a parent in addiction to my behavior as a parent in recovery but the twist is i'm 15 years old and i'm growing up at the same pace they are now so my age my emotional and mental recovery age is probably my, my daughter's 12 13 and my son's 16 17 and i'm about the same spot as where they are so it mixes it mixes pretty well
0: That is a really interesting way to say that. I hadn't thought about my age from a recovery perspective in relation to their emotional level. That is very helpful. It explains a lot on my behavior in relation to that struggle on that side of it. So that is really interesting.
1: So I go in at parent level, first of all, and say, right, behavior needs to stop. Consequences will will occur. Leave, move away, come back and have the conversation at their emotional level, understand where they are and, and take away that, you know, that, that judgment, abusive, shame, ju- you know, all that resentment that you pile on them and reduce them and, and put them back into uh, into an angry little cold spring and they'll come back at you and it will come worse. I hate to use the step analogies. Take the step three, walk away, powerless, point, zero point, ignore it. <clears throat> have a look at my part, their part, section it, work it out, go back and say, that was the trigger. That was the cause. That was the reaction. This is the solution. And that's what you need to watch for in the future. Let's work. Let's do that. And so far, so, so far, so good.
0: That's really great. And it comes down to using the right principles and the right routines and the right process. And it's funny because sometimes you're so involved in your own stuff selfishly. And I'm speaking about myself here that I don't look at it from really their perspective and try to understand it at the multiple levels that I think you need to, to be a good parent, just like you described. And that's, very insightful it's going to change a lot as soon as we hang up i'm going to really
1: it's actually the most selfish thing you can do uh, by leaving leaving the problem and selfishly take uh, my recovery and my needs away from that situation the situation is just bullshit it is what it is you know it? it's a, a broken something a lost something or an argument over something so uh, yeah we can either deal with the problem or we can make a new problem let's not make a new problem it's walk away and come back. So selfishly for my recovery, I do not want to have to go back and take inventory on my behavior, make amends for my behavior. When I mean, the situation was just bollocks anyway. You know, let the situation happen without without worsening let you know, don't start that snowball. Walk away. Very well said.
0: Don't create a new problem, just deal with the real problem at hand. Walk away and then come back with a clear head. This is <laughs> I'm Italian and I have a little bit of that Italian temper in me and it flares. And uh, I'm learning to, because my, the way I dealt with it in addiction was I would just drink or do Coke and cigarettes and sit in the garage and deal with it that way and let it simmer down over the long haul filled with all kinds of bad things. And I'm learning every day how to better control that. And sometimes it's a good day for me in that regard. And I've, I've I've not, I've not gone back. I've not used or, or drank or smoked. So that's good. Uh, but some days I lose the fight with my temper that comes up and down. And I, I point the Italian thing just as a comedy layer more than anything, but because it's me personally. It's got nothing to do with where I'm from or my family in that regard. But it's it's interesting because I think it comes down to my lack of control equals a temper issue in very many cases, where and then if I get too frustrated, I start cleaning or organizing or doing things that I actually can control. And it very often turns something gets clean, but then something emotionally gets dirty because I'm mean in other ways. So it's uh, it's a learning process. And I'm one I'm not very proud of, but I'm, I'm working through. We've
1: been there. Well, you said something interesting, the, um, uh, the the using and drinking part when I was using and drinking, which I did both. My children, you know, I was a, a prolific cocaine user uh, daily towards the end and a daily drinker, all day drinker and if they interrupted my i mean they never saw me using cocaine but you know i was clearly uh, off with the fairies but if they right. in my space when i was using and drinking my reaction would be uh, aggressive specific and personal very very directed at their behavior and you know their, uh, and i i was taught very very in recovery to to not repeat, you know, trying to heal the family, get it back together again, and make sure that the relationships are balanced and fair. They they would see an overreaction or an aggressive or angry reaction, a repeat of my uh, addictive reaction, and that's where I had to to package it and say, you know, that old behaviour of, you know, <clears throat> Daddy something happened. Well, let Daddy sort this out, and Daddy's going to this and Daddy's going to that, and and they both would separate in fear, and the problem would be where it was with the existing problems of relationship and harm around that. Whereas now yeah, the separation and, and walking away without repeating that behavior. Cause that trust is coming back slowly from those two, those two kids. Uh, and, you know, you know, kids, once you're scared of them, it takes a long while to heal. So that's, that's where it came from. It's um yeah. Powerless walk away and, and yeah. Don't create the new
0: problem. So we,
1: we're way off track.
0: <laughs> I think this is a marvelous conversation because I think it it's in line with, cause it's been about th- almost three years since I've been clean on all points and which which is three years is good, but I, I I talk to people that are thirty years in, and I'm like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. And and uh, but even a day clear is is a great day. So I, I like to tell, I like to say that. So people, when they start, don't look at one day as not a win. That's a big win. I point that out because thinking about who I was and how I was and how I behaved when I was drinking and using, I feel like I at least I felt like I emotionally handle things better. I didn't feel like I blew up and yelled and screamed because I was always preparing the cover up or Gosh. overcompensating because I was coked up or drunk. And now 40 years of bad habits essentially to break and I'm having to teach myself. So going back to what you mentioned, my emotional level from a age perspective is quite young because my 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 coping mechanisms have to be broken and restructured the right way, which Again, this is a perfect example of how I get so much more out of the podcast than I think the listeners do. And its I feel bad about it sometimes because it's truly a wonderful insight that it just hit me like a bolt of lightning just at this moment, that emotional age piece. Because I, damn it, I'd, I'd never thought about it that way. And it's truly insightful.
1: It was an accident. I found out the hard way. Yeah. <clears throat> but, but, but a comment from one of the kids, you're know, just as bad as me. <laughs> Actually, here I am
0: right and they hit you and they, they say things like that and they don't mean it in a mean or aggressive way but they say it and it hits you so hard in the stomach sometimes
1: once we got our ears and eyes open again shit hurts when it lands so, it really does uh
0: so back to the pre-addiction and and dealing with the room and, and the struggles and your you, you and your son had gone to the the doctor and then the feedback was focused on you i'm sorry if we could pick up there again.
1: yeah there was there was never really um Never really a happy day. I mean, the only the only time I felt really happy during the childhood was um, was when I, I was given a bike when I was about uh, ten years old. I was stay with my grandparents in the country during the summer, and I could get on that bike and go wherever I wanted, do whatever I wanted. Uh, they lived in quite a rural place, so there was a river. You know, there was a, a scrapyard where we could go and throw bricks through uh, old tractor windscreens and you know, just cool, all those things that you could get away with in the seventies. And then going back home to you know the family the house the the school you know it was just dark i, I didn't enjoy it and <clears throat> so that the uh the, the minute i was introduced to um to anything uh anything solvent based was great uh, uh you know alcohol didn't really i wasn't that asked about alcohol but most of the family had either uh, an alcoholic drinking habit or were dry drunks there were two or three dry drunks in the family and they were vicious you know they were really unpleasant people and, uh, and a great deal of um, of religion as well, an awful lot of um, hypocritical behaviour around the church, saying one thing on a Sunday and then uh, going home and, and the yeah uh, you, you know the school. Oh yeah. And there was very little um, comfort or uh, or good feeling uh, unless I was you know, I had something up, up each nostril and a, a tea towel in my mouth and I was breathing in any sort of thing I could uh, I could get hold of until my lips turned blue and they called an ambulance and I think that happened a few times. You know, my mum's reaction was, uh, are you unconscious again? Well, clearly, because I can't speak. But Right. A 13, 14-year-old kid wasn't the best. <clears throat> so, uh, yeah, at the age of 15, that was it. Uh, I did my exams at school. And at 16, I, I upped and left and, and just made myself homeless and, and lived on the streets.
0: Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, that's rough. I mean, in and so people that might not know when you do the inhaling and you pass out, I call right before you pass out the wah-wah when you you. that. And then you're gone and you, and you, and you pass out uh, and you could, it, you could be out for a 10th of a second. You could be out for five minutes. You don't know. Um, and you, you, you do need to be revived. Uh, it's, it's quite rough. I didn't take to it. I tried it a few times in my early, in like in high school and it, it didn't stick. But I, I had some friends that had some real problems where they would have so much paint around their nose and their lips on their face, that they were, they had to use paint thinner to get it off, it, 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 because they would hit it so hard for so long that they would have to go to. And my, this is not a Gladiator School podcast, but they would have to figure out ways to steal different sources because people were onto them at the stores and things. It was really crazy.
1: Yeah, yeah. I don't think there was a kid in my group of friends that any really, any of them's parents had anything valuable left in their garages because it was gone. Yeah, Each person would just uh, raid someone's garage for the day, and then, like you say, it was the uh, paint shops, yeah, uh, you know, home DIY stores. Yeah,
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was. It's funny. Like when you're an addict and you're chasing it, you'll find anything you need to, to get there. It's crazy. So if transitioning, then you're on the street. I mean, how long did you? So for me, I hit rock bottom really, really hard, and I, I dragged myself across it for quite a while. Yeah, totally. um, w- was that similar for you or did you have a quick uh kind of bounce bounce off the bottom
1: no that wasn't the bottom that was just the start of it <clears throat> so um from the age of uh I know, 17 to 19 <clears throat> I, I lived in the same town uh you know I was, I was able to get hold of pretty much anything i wanted because i was buying and selling it mm. uh, you know i would get a, a big package and sell three quarters of it and uh, and use the rest myself. And that was my introduction to MDMA, ecstasy, cannabis, amphetamines, etc., etc. Because alcohol was too slow. Alcohol was just, you know, you'd have to drink like five or six drinks and wait 20 minutes for something to happen. Fuck <laughs> that. Now. <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. We time for this. Yeah,
1: did. And alcohol was hard to get hold of. I and mean, you had to go to an adult shop and pretend to be an adult. But right. at age 17, you could ring a, ring a dealer and get a bag within 15 minutes. And it was, it was ideal yeah and then yeah moved to london started earning good money actually uh yeah, funny that because i didn't need to sleep so i was able to work here there and everywhere and, and make good money and that's when the alcohol kicked in that's when um you know the uh, the champagne the nightclubs the girls the money all that that happened and I, I wasn't i wasn't an alcoholic i don't think i was an alcoholic i loved my booze and i loved my nights out nightclubs three in the morning but then when it was three in the morning you picked up what you had in your pocket and it didn't matter that it was three in the morning because you, you were sober again
0: yeah
1: <clears throat> yeah then the alcohol the gradually the um, you know the, the pressure of work and and the the social responsibility towards parents employers and and other people started to change so the outcome, the, the drug sort of took a backseat unless i was binging and man could i binge you know that was you know i'd pick up a i think you guys call it an apple <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: <It's
1: good. laughs> um, but then, yeah, like you say, you know, walking around with your eyes bulging and your nose dribbling—that's that's not a good look. But you know, um, picking up a, a more classy uh, cocktail and uh, you know with a triple in it—that's okay. Never understood that. So yeah, the, the alcohol took over very quickly from from being able to sustain drinking with with all the other chemicals to just drinking. That was that was hard. But you also have – I don't know if you've uh, experienced this, but once you've had that stained high of, of a coke high or a, or a drug high, alcohol is boring, and you need to swallow a shitload of that stuff to get three-quarters of the way where you think you need to be. No doubt. But that time, your bladder doesn't work, your legs don't work, and you look like an idiot this is.
0: Yeah, no, you're right. And you and know. I would have to ladder up and down because of how much cocaine I was doing. Mm-hmm. I would have to drink – insane amounts of alcohol to be able to go to sleep right. or the reverse. I would drink so much because I would maybe do that. So I always kind of did things in combination. I believe I started drinking and then doing the Coke, but then when my Coke habit got really bad. I just woke up in the morning and started ripping lines. And then I would have to wait until it was socially acceptable. So to speak. And that was normally about five Oh one. And then I would hit it from five until three in the morning. And right. I would just rampage drink and I would slam at least a twelve pack of beer and almost at least a half a bottle of Telemore do whiskey. Yeah. Um, that's my ride, and and I or Jameson or whatever it would be, but and Jack Daniels, who knows? But I, I I would then ladder up and down. But you're right, the alcohol, and then of course with the cocaine, I would I could never do enough, and I couldn't do it frequent enough because, and then your nose would just start to horribly bleed and all the shit that along with it. So it it does turn into. I'm not a big proponent of the gateway description of things, but cocaine and alcohol fight for each other's attention. Almost. It's really hard to describe. And then once you do one, you have to do more of the other.
1: I could say I wouldn't, I wouldn't pick up a, a, a beer unless I'd already picked up my phone. So I had to have that call ready before, I, you know, by the time that guy was ready to meet me, I'd have one, that one, maybe move to another pub, have the second one. And now right, you better get here quick. Cause I'm ready. And that's right. Off you go. You're away.
0: Absolutely. Exactly the same for me. No doubt. In fact, I wouldn't even, if we went out of town for a day or two, I would not drink the entire time we were out of town because I didn't have access to cocaine. If I was in a town, I didn't have access to cocaine. And if I was in Vegas, it wasn't a problem because I could get it anytime I needed it. But if I was somewhere with like a family trip or something and I couldn't pick up, I wouldn't drink at all because I knew I couldn't, I could not do that. I I wouldn't make it.
1: Agony if you can't get it. It's it's just torture. Don't do
0: it. That's right. (laughs) Exactly. Oh, man. Yeah, we have a very similar story in a lot of ways. It's interesting. So now, as you were saying, you are at that level and mm-hmm. the alcohol just kind of starts to seep in and take over because you've got to kind of ladder up and down from the cocaine use and other things.
1: Yeah, that was about 20 years of that stuff. So probably from the age of, well, when I could afford it properly, uh, I don't know, 25 to, to 45. That was the alcohol. I mean, not the... Uh, i've been shown now what should have been one of my my missions of rock bottom was i used to have to leave a line of cocaine on the um uh on the top of the microwave in the kitchen so when my son who was less than a year old up screaming and hungry for for milk and uh yeah i was so bruised i had to get up and have a line of coke off the uh off the microwave just to find the fucking fridge and get stuck you know i bought this is the crazy thing i bought rubber gloves There was no way I was going to handle cocaine and then do my baby's and then you know. So, what parent buys rubber gloves to stop their baby's bottle getting contaminated with cocaine? (laughs) addicts it's only now, and you know, uh, at that instance, that was that was a clever thing to do. That was survival, that was okay because that was that
0: was what we do, right? I think, geez, that was that was crazy. But You know, exactly. I mean, to someone who's never struggled with cocaine or th- an addiction, that would blow their fucking mind. But for me, I totally understand exactly what you're saying, and it doesn't blow my mind because I know exactly where you're coming from. It's dark. Yeah. It dark. gets dark quick. Yeah, it dark. does. It's, it's fucking scary. Looking back on it, I often think, what the fuck was I thinking? What the fuck was I doing? Yeah. It's crazy.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I, I did some really horrifically dangerous things. Um yeah some of the stuff I did with with cocaine was um a I I bought quite a lot <clears throat> to go to go into London to do something and cuz I, I you know once you get rolling you're rolling there's no stopping you right so bought this stuff <clears throat> put it in my bag uh, got the got the train to London and London, that part of London is full of um police with guns and drug sniffer dogs and you know undercover policeman and there's me walking around with it with a yeah quite a bit on me <laughs>
0: enough to get people's fucking attention right
1: like <laughs> if, if there had been a police sniffer dog that had come near me, he would have got excited for you know it was, it was and then you know i managed, i'd have got away with that i got onto the uh onto the underground uh went to where I needed to go, and you know did did the thing but um so a step forward, and you look back and you think Christ you know I could have got not only arrested uh, I could have been put in prison for a very long time oh yeah a very long time And we're not talking like casual it was it was silly uh, my kids would never seen my mum would have been mortified you know everybody around me would just you know it would have been a bomb going off in so many people's lives but once you've pressed that fuck it bucket you you don't
0: care you do that's right.
1: Uh, you know, by the by the luck of the Irish or God or whatever it is, you know, I, I walked through that train station and, and out into the fresh air with all that stuff on me and never saw a police. And every time I've been back to that police station, there's been a police dog me the, the train station, there's been a dog on me within five minutes. And now I want you to sniff me, please. Sniff
0: me. <laughs> Go ahead. I'm good today. I'm I've, I've been good for a long time. You missed me back in the day. One of the things with cocaine that people uh, that have never struggled with it is it doing cocaine obviously is shit and it sucks and it ruins your fucking life. But what people don't realize are how shitty your decisions get when you're on it. You make the worst fucking decisions ever because you're chasing it and you think that you're invincible. It's the weirdest fucking thing in the world. And then you get piled on with it. Mm. And I I call it like the dust effect where you just don't give a fuck about anything, anything. Just like you described walking through where you know there are armed police with drug dogs, and you walk right fucking past them because yeah. you're like, "Fuck it, yeah. I'm I'm Superman or whatever the hell it is." Mm-hmm. It, and it happens. Anyone on like cocaine, and, and it's the scariest drug in the world because it makes you feel invincible, which leads to horrible fucking choices. Yeah,
1: they're not choices. They're not choices at that point. You just go. You're, you're you're on a roll, and that's uh, they, there's no decision to be made. It's just um, it's just a path, and you can't step off it because. The only way to step off it is to pick up a drink and end up in a coma somewhere because you know and, and get clean. and But then, yeah. the next day, and then you're, you're hungover. What's the best cure for a hangover? Oh, line, no,
0: <laughs> yeah, it's so true. It's the worst, most vicious cycle ever. And uh,
1: no, I think I've been clean coming up, um, I think it's like 19, 20 months now, something like that. And
0: uh,
1: I still get that physical reaction when people talk about it, but now, yeah, now when I hear people talking about cocaine, I just get this relief like, I'm not there anymore. I am free of that shit. Never yeah. ever come back to that.
0: Yeah, same. I, I had for a long time uh, I call it the Coke sweats where the anticipation of getting it would yeah. happen. And I'm 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 happy to say that the last year um, I can talk about it on the show and, and participate in conversations about it and have meaningful dialogue with people off the show. And I don't get the itch or the want or the drive to go grab it. Um, thankfully, it took a long time to get there in uh, a lot of positive mental routines and structure and other ways in my life to get to this point. But you can do it. It takes work and it takes continuous work. And I always say on the show that the people's path is their path, whatever that is work the routine. Don't ever think that today's the day. I don't need the routine. Cause you're, you're, you're that's your addiction yeah. fucking with you. Yeah. It's crazy. So now you're 20 months in, you say,
1: uh, so the, the cocaine was, um, January 31st last year. So it's coming up two years in January, I think. Uh, uh but uh, when I, when I, um, when I cocaine, the, uh, the alcohol took over with a vengeance. mean the, um, uh, the coming down from the cocaine after uh it wasn't a suicide attempt but it was definitely a, a not giving a shit whether I, i'd survived it or not it was uh i spent the the, the night in a hotel in london i took a, a the big bag of of stuff through the uh through the london transport system Fucking insane <laughs> <laughs> and uh did the lot just sat in a hotel room with a, a bottle of a uh, big bottle of vodka i think it was you know the really big bottles yeah, just sniffed and drank and sniffed and drank and sniffed and drank and, and survived. And to this day, uh, I've known people that have overdosed on less. For sure. Mm. No doubt.
0: Fuck. No doubt. Very lucky.
1: Well, so I walked away from that hotel <clears throat> um, bleeding and screaming. Uh, that the At the time, the police were, were not happy for me to be walking around London, uh, but they couldn't arrest me because I didn't have anything on me. Yeah. Um, that's when that day was when the alcohol uh, that's when i became an 8am putting the kids on the school bus and going straight to straight to wine in the morning uh, that's when my my work started to being affected this when my work really I mean, my work was always affected by alcohol and, and, and drugs because a lot of the guys i worked with it was a way of doing business so, yeah you, know, you went somewhere somebody organized the uh the booze and the girls and someone else organizes the, uh, the, the two, and, you know, that's, that's how business was done in, in, in the place I worked. And it got too much for those guys. I mean, the, the guy I worked for is an alcoholic
0: Yeah.
1: and he said to me, you're
0: too much. <laughs> <laughs> that's a lot, right? When you're like, Oh my God, if you're saying that to me, yeah. how bad must I be? Yeah,
1: uh, he said, uh, he said, you know, we drink, but you power drink like, yeah, that's fine did you pick something and it's just down one, and uh, they, they gave me uh they gave me a solution to my uh my employment problem yeah, unemployment bye-bye so that was that was last april <clears throat> no sorry last last april. anyway so that's um <clears throat> between the 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 ending of the cocaine the uh the prolific drinking, unconscious blackout drinking for probably weeks. Then they gave me a big fat payout check. And that's when the, you know, the, the drinking stepped up again. Uh, and you know, physically sick, uh, unable to do any. I, I was done. I couldn't. You know, you get to the point where you, you pick up that alcohol and you try and swallow it. And your body just says, don't do it. Just enough. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, that was the 14th of April, 2019. That was my last physical drink. And- that's great. Yeah, been there's been so I think now I'm I'm one day short of 530 days today. I think five two nine something like
0: that. That's amazing. <laughs>
1: yeah. It's really worth it, worth every day.
0: It's really worth it. And so, what was the up to this point? So day one to 529, mm-hmm. for example. Uh, tell us a little bit about what this maybe the recovery struggle, and then what life was like in the sunshine. I think a little bit of both because for me, I it took a while for me to kind of knock over the addiction machine uh, the right way by getting, I had to break so many habits, 40 years of horrible, bad habits. Yeah. And that that was the hard part for me where my, my reaction emotionally, physically, and through substance was to go into all of that. And I had to break all those bad habits. Um, was it the same for you where you had to physically focus on creating new positive habits? Because it was a lot of work. It still is a lot of work for me uh-huh. in that regard.
1: Luckily, or unluckily, no. Um, I, I was uh, just just after I got sacked, uh, my car taken off me, so I had no car. I had money, so they gave me a, a pretty good a pretty good goodbye package because they wanted rid of me quickly. You know, there was no debating over um, legal discussions over you know who's right, who's wrong. They said you know we just do not want you around anymore. Take the money and go. <clears throat> so I had money in the bank. And a roof over my head. So I was able, really, once I decided to get sober, um, just to do that. So the first month of sobriety, day three, I went to an AA meeting. I borrowed a car off a friend. <laughs> that was a tricky conversation. Can I borrow your car? Are you drunk. No, Are you should. Sure? <laughs>
0: <laughs> You're lying. No, I'm, I swear, I haven't had a drink in three days. <laughs> <laughs>
1: if you haven't had a drink in three days, that means you're going to drink.
0: Said, no, no. <laughs> you're going to the pub. No, I'm not. No. I'm going to a meeting. That,
1: that was hard. So I went I went to an AA meeting in a town about 30 miles away because I didn't want to be recognized yet. Yeah, That, that ego was massive back then. For sure. And even after all these meetings in all these different cities I've been to, you, you can guarantee any AA room, any meeting, people don't really know other people. And if they do know other people, uh, it's only only because they know them in the rooms, and I've, I think in all the time I've been there, yeah, I've met one person outside the room. That's it, just one. So yeah, the, um, the my day three experience was um, was go to go to a meeting, met met some really good guys. It was it was a, a spiral staircase to get up to this meeting, and uh, at the top was the coffee and the tea place. Then you had to go one way to the toilet or the other way to the room, and it was just a big group of. Uh, of guys who, who saw me coming up the stairs and knew straight away who I was, why I was there and what was going to happen next. That thing was, was just, you know, taking shitting and shivering. I think they call it. <laughs> yeah. But at the end of that meeting, um, I think maybe that meeting, maybe the, I don't know, a couple of meetings. Um, yeah, the group of guys that I met were solid and they, you know, they picked me up. They wouldn't leave me alone. They hassled every which way they would. <clears throat> I, I went to breakfast with them the following Saturday. I hadn't, I hadn't eaten breakfast. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> Eat breakfast? No. Uh, so we did that. And then it just became a daily routine of meetings, meetings, meetings. Uh, they introduced me to the Joe and Charlie tapes. and Yeah, so, so those guys introduced me to, um, to Joe and Charlie. So I was at home with the kids going to school. I had a lot of time on my hands, a hell of a lot of time, just to um, just to get get clean and sober, really, and listen to podcasts. I mean, I think in in the first month, uh, I was listening to three or four speaker tapes a day, going to at least one meeting a day, um, and just embracing embracing um, uh, cocaine anonymous, alcoholics anonymous. Then I found that cocaine anonymous wasn't relevant to me because I wasn't I don't think I was a cocaine addict, but I was a, a a beer and coke addict, and the beer was the beer was the trick. <clears throat> so yeah, the um, getting through the first one hundred days, uh, I, I met some people that that changed the way I, I looked at life around um, family, relationships, honesty, truth, and uh, you know none of this. None of this recovery center bullshit. There was no fluffy rehab and, you know, you'll be okay. Just keep coming back. It was, you know, These guys will f- do the work, which I did. Uh, I got my sponsor just after, I think, about 85 days. Um, <clears throat> I got a job. At- <coughs> Excuse me. I, went, I went out and I was very lucky to get a job uh doing what i did before with a guy who knew me and he he said to me we we all know you're a lovable rogue but let's just have the lovable bit we don't want the rest and it turns out his wife was in recovery his daughter is in recovery and he knew the program he knew (laughs) so there was no getting away with it from him he he was very keen that you know the the conversations we have were more about uh how's your daily program how's your sponsor how's this how's that and he pushed me as well so I, i mean Talk about falling on your feet giving that time off to get away from all of the habits meeting an employer that was pushing my recovery program for me and a, a sponsor that was you know that we worked pretty much um i'd say a step every 10 days maybe a step every two weeks and it was that it was just one after the other non-stop yeah <clears throat> and then um, yeah the the uh the, the sponsorship was was very much um page by page, line by line. Uh, you know, no yeah but me's and yeah but what ifs, none of that. Um and we worked we worked through the book. Uh we got to step four. Um and I think my step four was was under two hours. It was, um uh started reading out of resentment. His reaction was selfish, next. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Um, self-centered, self-centered, blah, and he just broke everything down. He just said, that was you, that was you, that was you, that was you. And he did this whole s- step five while he was cooking his dinner. So I was at the kitchen table reading my, my step four to him, and he was over there cooking dinner, and my resentment was, you ignorant wanker, why don't you listen to me? Me, 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 listen, listen, this is... And uh, at the end of it, he just went, "Um, ignorant, self-centered, selfish, this... Oh, man, I hated him. <laughs> yeah. The enemy just went arrogant. Okay. <laughs> so that was my that was my fifth. And uh, uh, yeah, anyway, we worked six, seven, eight, nine. Um my ninth was amazing. My ninth was just a life changer. Uh, I was able to go back and, and see See my dad, my, yeah, my <clears throat> 30 years of hate, aggression, and, and nastiness towards a man that was just trying his best. You know, he was, um, I've learned in recovery now that uh, that guy has got more balls and stood up stronger and straighter than I ever, ever could. And the shit I threw was just horrific, horrific. He's lived his whole life in shame because of my actions. And it was just, so, anyway, you know, it was a weird thing. I went, I went to work. My work was cancelled. And, and at that time, i was about five miles from his house and i haven't been there in years you know there was no way i breathed the same air as that man i hated him hated him and uh (laughs) my car went to his house (laughs) i was stood on his doorstep banging on the door and the look on his face went when he saw me and he's over 70 now and he's, he's an old man um and we sat and we talked and i said you know i'm an alcoholic and um, this is why, this is what I do, this is why I'm here. <laughs> but I didn't know why I was there, so I just turned up and just fuck. I had no amends planned. Um, uh, and, well, yeah, we, I think we sat for about two hours. Uh, that conversation with that man, you know, I'm proud to call my dad. Uh, all those years, I would never admit to to being in the same room as him. And to see to see the the, the relief on his face when he, he said to me, But son, I thought I made you an alcoholic. <laughs> you, can't, you can't do that. You can't make me an alcoholic. <clears throat> that sweetness and that innocence and that purity in, in his sorrow. And I said, you know, well, I've really fucked you over for all these years. And I'm truly sorry. Now now we have the conversations that are just <clears throat> yeah, just amazing conversations about the most ridiculous. And I can see. Pick up the phone and call him and talk to him and uh, it's a shame I should have done it years ago but hey that's the way it is. <clears throat> but being given that, you know you hear all these stories about the the planned amends and, and all of these um, beautiful stories. Mine, mine was um, mine was a genuine surprise when it happened and and the the reaction from him and the the way the way I've learned that when when he was when i was a young young 15 year old arsehole i would see him riding his bike to work <clears throat> i would see him going to church in in ragged shoes and you know and no no exaggeration he didn't have any money he would wear a suit that was too small for him and he, he was sitting in the same church as people with porsches and mercedes and, and he prayed and he fucking prayed and now i look back and i think that guy got up at whatever time of every day he was twenty-four years old. He'd taken my mum on with four children, and one of those was his. The other three were just were feral, <laughs> anybody And he rode his bike to work, earned the money, looked after us, rode his bike home, went and prayed, and was more of a Christian and more of a religious and more of a faith man, like I say, than I could ever. He, he and only looking back now, you know, the guy I hated, I should have spent my life admiring, and. Um, yeah, it was it was fucking tough. This makes me emotional now, but that that switch in perception from hating the guy to admiring the guy. Let's move on. I'm gonna cry.
0: Damn it, I think that that's a perfect place to end because I think that that sums up absolutely everything from a purpose perspective for every one of these episodes on the Dismantled Life podcast is about that redemption and the ability to not only forgive but be forgiven and live in the sunshine after the shit that we put ourselves and our family and friends through so i think personally that is a graceful and wonderful place to end it's been my honor sir